Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone, he's our guest, editor, author, and podcast host, Andy Miller. On the rising curve, where the ways of nature will test every nerve, I took you close and got what I deserved when we were born in time. Just when I knew who to thank, you went blank. And just when the home fires were smoking, you were snow, you were rain, you were striped, you were plain. Oh, babe, truer words have not been spoken. I'm broken. In the hills of mystery, in the foggy web of destiny, I think of you from deep inside of me when we were born in time. You know, I don't believe I've ever heard you were striped, you were plain before. I adore that. I, that was, yeah, I love the song. I absolutely love it. And I love that version as well, because I think I'm right in saying that you're quoting from the Oh Mercy outtake version and not the Under the Red Sky version. Is that right? Let's make it clear to listeners we're not fucking around today. <laughs> we are not. We've had full nerd central, yeah. I, I knew one of you or both of you would <laughs> spot that. So I, that's from Born in Time, which came out on Oh Mercy, and there's been a couple of other versions on one of the bootleg series, and that's one of my favourite Dylan songs. But that version is, yeah, it still hasn't had an official release, and it's the one that kind of snuck out on a tape in the 90s. And I think it's on Telltale Signs, isn't it, that one? No. Nope. <laughs> so every, the, the Stripes line I haven't heard before, because I haven't well, heard it. Well, I don't, I, I, it's, I think it's not in every version, and certainly that lyric that I just read you is mm. specific to that particular version of the song. It's one of those instances, you know, of Bob rewriting again and again and again mm. between takes. But that version has is the sweet spot of lyric and vocal delivery, and mm-hmm. um, so hope it. I hope it gets properly released. No, absolutely, day. and I, and you could read just when I knew who to thank. You went blank on a paper. You'd think, yeah, what's that? But actually, that's a beautiful, a beautifully delivered phrase, whether it's spoken or sung. Yeah, what I noticed actually when I was uh, checking it against <laughs> all the various <laughs> versions was how it is that magical. Dylan thing of I'm almost embarrassed to read it out because the real interpretation is the sung interpretation and there's a particular way that in other versions Bob sings um oh babe truer words have not been spoken or broken but on that version he sings oh babe truer words have not been spoken I'm broken and he really bites into broken as well so it's the sort of thing you know that phrase before the song um, I'm borrowing this from Clinton Hayden, but before the song gets away from him, that mm. there's something in the moment that perhaps he does or doesn't hear or thinks it's too like Bob Dylan or not enough like Bob Dylan or whatever Bob mm. Dylan means to Bob Dylan at the moment he's recording it. And um, and there it goes. But I, it's such a beautiful, it's such a great song. Shall I say a bit about why I wanted to share that with you guys? Yes, do. Mm. Yes, please. So I'm so flattered and delighted that you asked me to come and do is it rolling bob because this is just one of the best podcasts forget that it's a bob dylan podcast it's just such a lovely vibe and it actually has caused me to freeze up a bit because i mean to get to choose that particular lyric it only took me about two weeks because <laughs> <laughs> i was just thinking oh like this is like you got one shot yeah um <laughs> And I was thinking as well, what do I want to talk about to these two 
experts in their field. And I think I wanted to talk about a thing I'm, I've been mulling over a lot. It's something I'm trying to write about at the moment, which is the gap between what Bob Dylan means in the world in 2021 and what he meant to me when I discovered his music in the mid-1980s. And increasingly, those two things don't match up. And uh, I'm sure we can talk about the, the ways in which, but Born in Time seems to, seems to express, for me, that kind of ambivalence that you, you develop a deep relationship with the work of an artist that you love. I mean, it could be a musician or a writer or, or whoever. What do you think about the phrase born in time, Andy? Well, I'm just sorry to interrupt, but whatever time I hear you mention the title, I want to unpick that. Born in time. Okay, so for me, for me, it means within this context, you know, my relationship with a with the work of a particular writer is formed in the moment that I discover it, probably. So that's the born in time is in a sense is almost a literal meaning for me, but then. It makes me think about Elvis Costello's Man Out of Time. Again, I don't really know quite exactly what that means. I have a sense about what I think it means, and it's my favourite Elvis Costello song, by the way. But I wonder if the two things are related. You know, it can exist then. It exists now in a different way. But also how we hear something when we first hear it is, is we can never quite lose that, right? So mm. my relationship to Born... Let's say my relationship to the song Born in Time... I've chosen a version that is the version I first heard in about 1993 or something. So that's my relationship to that song. That was born in that particular time. And I, I think like, you know, your relationship or our relationship to Bob Dylan's music can be striped or plain, <laughs> <laughs> snow or rain, depending on how we feel at any time. It can be a, a great blessing and it can be an illuminating thing or else it could really weigh us down. You it can know? be a curse, yes. I mean, that's true, right? That's, that's yeah. true. And so that's all of a piece with what, I, what I'd like to talk about with you guys. It's basically a therapy session. Damn right. I'm up for that. Yeah, aren't they all? I mean, what do you think Bob Dylan means in 2021? Let me or, talk or about is that my... your big conclusion? No, I don't have an answer to that. But I, I, have, I have some suggestions. Well... I'd like to talk about it in relation to my experience of Bob Dylan. This is my experience of Bob Dylan. I will keep it. I haven't really, I've never really talked about this, but, you know, I discovered Dylan in 1985, about three days after my dad died. He died very suddenly. He died quite young. And I was quite young. I mean, I was 17, but I was a young 17 when, when he died. And, you know, obviously it was awful and uh, shocking. And, our next door neighbours, who were a couple, who in fact Alan might listen to this because he's still around and loves Dylan. But our next door neighbours, Alan and Pam Weston, they were really kind to me and my mum. You know, they were they were there for us. And about about three days after Dad died, Alan knocked at the door and said, he knew I was really into music, and he said, uh, you know. I think, he, I think he wanted to give me something to do. And he said, I thought you might enjoy these, these albums. And he gave me four LPs to listen to. Uh, would you like to know what those four LPs were? Yes, please. Okay, so they were uh, Harvest by Neil Young, Album 2 by Loudon Wainwright III. Oh, wow. <laughs> Highway 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan. 
and and you know I was very into 60s music then and I am now so it wasn't a reach in a sense for me to for him to give me 60s and 70s records but I had never heard a Neil Young album and I'd certainly never heard of Loud and Wainwright the third and I, I mean I kind of knew who Bob Dylan was anyway I quite like Harvest I am incidentally now a huge Neil Young fan, but Harvest isn't my favourite record. I absolutely loved Album 2 by Loud and Wainwright III. That's still my favourite Loud and Wainwright III record. Hmm. He probably wouldn't agree with me on that. But anyway, it's nothing like Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's the other thing for a new Dylan. It's nothing like Bob Dylan. I mean, I was, and there I was in 1985, grieving and open. <laughs> I can tell you it's nothing like Bob Dylan. But and and Highway sixty one revisited and blonde on blonde, and uh, those so records. What happened were, next? Well, what, I listened. Did you decide to, which I, one to play first? I mean, yeah, I, was, I can tell you which I played first. I yeah. played Highway sixty one revisited first, and I can tell you to this day, I can remember the feeling of hearing it for the first time. I never heard anything like it, and it wasn't the lyrics, and it wasn't the melody, and it wasn't the folk tradition. And it wasn't the 80s Dylan music that was around at that point. It was the sound of the thing. It was the, you know, I was listening to the Jesus and Mary Chain. They were my favourite group. And I was listening to uh, the Velvet Underground, who I absolutely loved and still love to this, to this day. And the point is, Highway 61 Revisited could bear comparison with their records for the absolute sledgehammer horrible noise that it made <laughs> and this is a thing that i think is forgotten about dylan right mm. that the and that spoke to me in 1985 this is the point i want to get on to mm. i subsequently discovered that alan had like a, some particular uk pressing which i now many years later have discovered is famous for being cut very loud so when you put the needle on the record it really roars out at you right it is and and highway 61 revisit only sounds right to me in that uk version which i have of course mm. really in your face and the voice that idea that brilliant phrase of dylan singing the music he's not just singing he's singing the whole sound that's assaulting you from out of the speakers and then i moved on to blonde on blonde and you know there's a way that Bob sings uh, sooner or later, one of, us, one of us must know sooner or later, which for me, I can't, I almost can't play it because it's so raw for me. Everything that I was feeling, you know, the grief and the sort of weird exhilaration and there wasn't any consolation in it, but it was incredibly consoling. And the, this is a long-winded way of saying it was so alive for me in that moment. These weren't records from the past, and I never thought of them as records from the past. They were absolutely and totally 100% there, absolutely current and flowing through my bloodstream. So if you ask me what does Dylan mean in 2021, I find it very difficult to deal with the idea that he's become this thing that old blokes like that it's dad rock, and it really gets on my tits <laughs> to have people say to me, oh, yeah, Bob Dylan, oh, you like Bob Dylan like all the old dads do. And I want to say no, no, 
I'm not an old dad. Mm-hmm. I'm an individual, and I'm the individual for whom that music meant everything in 1985 mm. in a way you can't understand for reasons you can't understand. And so my, I'm using your podcast to throw down my, <laughs> Good. my, my anger, uh, my resentment about that, actually. I really want to say, whatever your Bob Dylan is, that's not my Bob Dylan. Yeah. And the joy and emotion and, that I get is not a kind of safe option, a kind of a hygienic version of what rock and roll used to be. It is what rock and roll used to be. It has all the angst and energy and power and upset and yobbishness and noise that real music has. And Mm. so what does Bob Dylan mean in 2021? Well, I don't think he means that. But that doesn't mean he doesn't mean the other thing still as well. It's like those fuckers who say to you, you can't be into Bob Dylan, you're too young. I mean, I, yeah. was, I was not alive in the 60s. What, so I can't, I can't listen to the Beatles? I can't listen to Bob Dylan? Or they, or they think, oh, Bob Dylan, oh, that's very much of, of a specific time. And you think, well, it kind of was, yes, but it's also of now. It's of, of whenever you want it to be. There's nothing in that music that ties it to a particular time, apart from maybe some of the early material. But God, it winds me up when people say that. Actually, one of uh, my favorite bits that we got from a guest was when, uh, well, I don't know if he said this actually on the podcast, but he may have said it to me privately. Uh, we had Tom Sutcliffe on, uh, who uh, mm. is Radio 4 personality, of course, uh, yeah. arts personality. And he said either to me or on the podcast that he, he's not a big Bob Dylan fan, Tom. He he, he sort of came on as a, as a favor in the early days and, and went through actually bringing it all back home. We, we talked about every track. But anyway, he said, I know when my 17-year-old son, this was back a few years ago, is upset and angry and I shouldn't approach him when I hear Bob Dylan coming from his room. And uh, I thought that was one of the greatest things I'd heard because there's another 17-year-old who's discovered Bob Dylan when he's angry and upset. So It was so true for me that Alan Weston, a couple of weeks later, came round and apologised to my mum because all he could hear coming from my bedroom (laughs) played at incredible volume was like Tombstone Blues or, or, you know, I don't know. Just like Tom Thumb's blues, it's that was amazing yeah. on Shadow Kingdom. When that version, di- when di- oh God Almighty, my favourite version of Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues is the Highway 61 revisited version. I love Judy Collins's version from the sixties, the really baroque orchestration, mm. Joshua Rifkin orchestration. That's amazing. Mm. But that mm. the version on Shadow Kingdom is just stunning. I think. I think uh, talking about twenty twenty one, Bob Dylan. I mean, I think Shadow Kingdom, I happen to have a bootleg version which I can play all the time, both the video and the audio. And I've been listening to the audio, oh, as much as any new Dylan album. I mean, it really should be a Dylan album because it's it's yeah. just fabulous what he I does. I absolutely agree with you, Kerry. That I, While I was uh, watching it for the first time, I thought, this has got to be a record though, right? Because, and I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why. Because... The thing I, one of the things that I really liked about Rough and Rowdy Ways, which struck me as really unusual for a latter day Dylan record, is how clearly I felt anyway, I don't know how you guys felt, that the, the vocals had been so carefully recorded and worked on and phrased. Yeah. You know, we know yeah, that Bob likes to not do that. 
But at the age of 78 or 79, it sounded like he had actually, that was, he knew he had a good set of songs and he wanted to get them down mm. and he wanted to, for once, get definitive takes. So whether he did that in the booth or whether he did that in rehearsal, I don't know. But the singing on that record is mm. his best vocalising for years. Mm. Well, I, I would and that's why I say... This, sorry, that, just to finish. Yeah, just go on, my, go on. Just, yeah. That's what I heard in Shadow Kingdom. It was almost like... He said, I want to get this while I'm still feeling it and go back to older songs and see if I can nail them in the same way that I nailed the material on on Rough and Rowdy Waves. I mean, I, who knows? I don't know. But that's how it felt to me anyway. Well, I, I agree with all that, although I would say that the orchestration on Shadow Kingdom, to me, it suits my taste better than the Rough and Rowdy Ways orchestration, which in its own way is is fabulous. But... To me, Shadow Kingdom, the, the music on Shadow Kingdom is actually probably more accessible. I, I think it's mm. it's it's lovelier. It's I was listening to it again the other day, and I actually heard, which I hadn't realized before, on Forever Young, fabulous version of that. I think I hear a harpsichord. I'm, I'm yeah, sure yeah. I hear a harpsichord, and of course, it's great because in the visuals. There is no harpsichord in sight. No one is playing a fucking harpsichord. They're just, you know, playing those yeah. those normal instruments which aren't syncing up to the music. Um, but I do another favorite moment I had. I mean, I could talk about Shadow Kingdom for a long time. Was um, the way he when he first deconstructed "To Be Alone with You," which probably is my uh, the thing that I would quote, even though it's a, from a very simple album. It's my one of my favorite albums. So he he deconstructs and rewrites "To Be Alone with You," possibly my favorite Bob Dylan song. Yeah, and he says, um, "I remember when I first heard." It, he said, "You're alive, and so am I." <laughs> I just thought was I thought what what? Uh, but it's it's brilliant. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, I'm I'm so fucking old. <laughs> I'm so fucking old, and, and I'm still alive. And you know what? So are you. Yeah, You're, yeah. We're alive in this this yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it ends with, my mortal bliss is to be alone with you. My mortal bliss. Amazing. I just think that's yeah. gorgeous. I, I, I have two thoughts about Shadow Kingdom. The first is, why wasn't it called Marston Anonymous? And the second one is, I, I, was it you mentioned Forever Young? Yeah. I thought that was that was like um, I, I'm sorry I haven't a clue. It was like the lyrics of Forever Young sung to the melody of Is Your Love in Vain. <laughs> <laughs> totally changed the tune, which is obviously that's fine. But I thought uh, my favourite thing is that version of What Was It You Wanted. Yeah, just, I'm glad you said oh that. Oh my yeah, god, yeah, yeah. it's amazing, incredible. But am I alone in thinking when, when I heard that version of What Was It You Wanted? It struck me as somebody, possibly anyway, quite possibly that it was a man who couldn't remember what was it oh i love wanted and i i hear the whole song through that prison mm. my, my dad's got alzheimer's and mm. i just thought this is what it seems to me now to be about but you know clearly it's about a million different things but it seems to be a very accurate representation of what was it you wanted? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me again. Tell me again, so I'll know. Tell me again, so I'll know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're very lucky, aren't we? we? You know, we're able to talk about the point at which we're recording this. We're able to talk about Dylan having released a best-selling, uh, much-loved new record, and he's just made this incredible special. 
But I go back to Born in Time, we were talking about at the start. I took you close and got what I deserved when we were born in time. You know, there is a sense if, if you if you wedded yourself to Dylan in 1985, <laughs> hang on, you will get what you deserve. Uh, um, and it's been, so it's been a long path. You'll remember, right? That was slim pickings to be a Dylan fan oh God, yeah. until oh, yeah. oh Mercy. So I come on board in about 85 and then... It take, I mean, at the time, this seemed like a lifetime, right? It's only four years. But uh, it takes, you know, you're in the absolute dregs of... I mean, I quite like Down in the Groove and Knocked Out Loaded. It took me years to work out that the reason why Knocked Out Loaded is called Knocked Out Loaded is because it was knocked out, comma, loaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tossed <laughs> off, I, drunk. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it has, you know, but it has its moments. But I wasn't at that... I just wanted to hear the good stuff. What I found was there was much more good stuff than not good stuff. So that era from like 80, and I'm fascinated what your experience was like. So from 85 to 89, let's say from 85, maybe longer than that, you know, until the advent of the internet, I was just, you're, you're working blind. You're, you know, yeah. I'm buying cassettes to see what might be on them. And uh, you know there's all this good stuff out there, but th there's very few people who can help you find it. Um, I would do things like, I, mean, I, th I think my first copy of Oh Mercy was bought from a charity shop on tape. I would play it safe just in case, because I didn't want to be too damaged by spending money on a CD and then finding out it was, it was shit. So I would sort of tipped her around, and then I, I would buy Oh Mercy on tape from a charity shop for two quid, and i think, no, actually, this is fantastic. I will get this on CD at some point. When would that have been, Luke? Oh, that was, well, I was late because that was, um, well, not that late. It was early 90s. I, I got into Dylan in the early 90s. I'm about three years younger than you. So I, right. so I didn't, yeah, I, the first time I saw him, he was touring Under the Red Sky. So I just missed that, that Oh Mercy thing. But I've gone back to it many, many times. And I think you can make a decent album just about, and I've just tried recently, out of Empire Burlesque and the, and the recordings that are available. Oh, you on, sure on you can. You definitely can. But after that, thing, I, I think was talking to a friend of mine who'd, who'd been listening to the, the new 80s set and said, you know what, we might have finally solved the puzzle as to why Bob chose to release the takes or songs that he did mm. in that era, which isn't so much that he had, you know, a particular aesthetic or intellectual reason for doing so. But there's, there's an awful lot of takes on this box set where he sounds the worse for wear. <laughs> could mm. could it be they just went for the ones which sounded pretty together? Could yeah. be. Would explain a lot. Yeah. I mean, clearly it's a fallow period in some ways. Mid to late 80s is a fallow period. But he's firing on all cylinders but, through infidels. But this is another thing. When people say Dylan in the 80s was shit, I mean, I... I've thought about this. I think they're only talking about 1986 to 1988. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Because there's plenty of good stuff before then, and after that you've got Oh Mercy, which is just my, my favourite, personally, of all of them. You really only What, your favourite Bob Dylan record? Yeah, I think so. I've come around to this, yeah, this conclusion yeah. now. I, it just Maybe it's the age I am, but they, it just there's something about the songs and the voice, and I felt it, you know, every time you've mentioned a song from Oh Mercy, be it... Born in Time, The Outtake, or What Was It You Wanted, I, I go back to those songs. They sound like 
the voice of a man that I really want to listen to, who's yeah, who's yeah, got like to the that, right yeah. age where those songs reflect his own experience. And it doesn't sound like he's reaching for anything. I think maybe this is an interesting thing. The, you know, how we feel about these things changes over the years. I think maybe Oh Mercy was overrated when it came out and is now underrated. Because uh, I think I agree with you, Luke. Mm. I, think, I think that record is terrific. I think that's one of the greats. And I would take that over... No, but we don't have to have these competitions, do we? We don't, do we? I, I, I would take it over <laughs> quite a lot of the, quite a few of the subsequent more praised records. Yeah, me too. Um, mm. And I agree. He, I, I think if you if you throw in series of dreams, dignity, born in time, and there's a the rumored version is broken. of um, yeah, yeah, and there's a rumored version of TV talking song from those sessions which we haven't heard yet, but uh, the, okay. which I think. The outtake from Under the Red Sky is pretty damn good. So if there's no Mercy one, that might be even better. But that's what I love about that performance of Born in Time. I mean, to be fair, you know, all the... But that performance of Born in Time, whatever he's feeling, he's really feeling it in that that moment. He's present. He's totally present. Um, I have to go back to your uh, thoughts on the, the fact that the uh, those tracks were not used because he was a little the worse for wear. Well, I because, don't know. Well, yeah, yet. I don't think that that would stop Bob. <laughs> and, uh, no. I mean, certainly sure. hearing his, uh, I love, I mean, I love it when he's the worst for wear and I love listening now. I mean, but that, of course, that, that doesn't prove my point, but the rambling to the audience say when he was at the Royal Albert Hall, in, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the long, I mean, you can get stoned just listening to him talk. He's oh, so good. blasted. Uh, and then he sings. And it's it gives another sort of dimension. I mean, God knows what drugs he was on, but it's I find it absolutely fascinating to hear to hear his brain I working. Be, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. This, this is a drug song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's a drug Vulgar. But there's a couple of nights on there, aren't there? There's like the is it the second Albert Hall? Yeah, uh, and yeah, yeah. Melbourne maybe. Mm. where the acoustic sets particularly, yeah. he's obviously high as a That's kite, right. but they're incredible. Mm. I mean, yeah. you well, know, I nearly wanted to read, I nearly read a lyric from Visions of Johanna on the grounds that just because it's very obvious, that doesn't mean it isn't a, <laughs> it's yeah. a brilliant mm. choice. Mm. And I always think of the take on Biograph or on one of those dates as yep. being the climbing inside the infinity of that song and mm-hmm. seeing and seeing what's in there they're incredible performances you know they are and, and when he's off his face on that tour it makes the acoustic set much much better and it tends to make the electric set very very messy i mean that second yeah, Albert Hall show is a really i agree example. with you yeah you know that i mean the the first the two the two other hall concerts are the same songs in the same order 24 hours apart and i think the second show is 20 minutes longer than the first one yeah, yeah. Uh, well, just, let me you know. let me ask you a thing. Okay, so this is relevant to my to this thing about how we felt about Bob Dylan when we first discovered him versus now what he means in 2021. You know, one big difference is we talked about Oh Mercy. For me, the most significant Bob Dylan release of the last well, since Oh Mercy is Bootleg Series Box Set Volumes One to Three, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that kind of changes everything. It's a, it's first of all, it's a, I doubt it was meant as such, but it's a, almost an admission more than Biograph was of saying, you know what, that thing you've always, you've been saying about Bob that he never chooses his best stuff. Yeah, it's true. Mm. <laughs> here's, here's three CDs of it, mm. you know, but also 
the idea that we would live in an era where we would have lovely, pristine versions of entire tours and we would have all the basement ta- The idea that all the basement tapes would come out <laughs> yeah. sounding great yeah. with unreleased stuff and nobody really cared very much because by that point it had just become hived off into part of the old bloke industry, the guys who were left who would buy it. I remember having a conversation with a friend where we were going, this is so unjust that some of the music on here won't be heard by people who would love it so much because mm. it's been ruined by people like us or by yeah, people selling it to no, people like us. I sent yeah. Dress It Up Better Have It All to one of my oldest friends who's really into sort of 50s sun era rock and roll. I said, look, this, you, you'll like this. This is, this is a really obscure song from the basement tapes that even people like me didn't know it existed. But seriously, listen to this. I mean, he never got back to me, but I'm convinced that there's lots of songs like that, as you say. Well, when we did... Um, we did a special episode of Backlisted about books about the Beatles, where our guests were David our friends, Mark. David Hepworth yeah. and Mark Ellen. And, uh, you know, I chose, everybody was allowed to bring one book. And my choice was the script of Up Against It by Joe Orton, which obviously is incredibly obscure. That's the <laughs> film that he wrote that was yeah. never filmed for the Beatles. But like, the point I was trying to make was... The industry around these things, the heritage industry around these things, is kind of ruining and stripping away how much energy and anarchy there was in those artists' work in the era in which they were making it. I go back, or or could still be in 1985 if you were me. And the idea that the Beatles were seen as a threat to society, you would never think that now. On the day we were recording this, the Conservative Party have announced they're giving £2 million to build another museum in Liverpool to the Beatles. The idea, can you imagine such a thing happening in the 1960s? No, you can't, because they were seen as being a threat to the actual civilization. (laughs) One of the things I really loved about the new Velvet Underground documentary that Todd Haynes has made is, as I kind of knew he would, a big fan of I'm Not There, he finds a way of presenting the Velvets, which wouldn't be my version of the Velvet Underground necessarily, but is a version of the Velvets which makes them feel nasty and sleazy yeah. and horrible <laughs> and noisy and dangerous and unsavoury, mm. right? So they haven't been smoothed down by the uh, what we should call the old bloke industry or yeah, the old yes. dad industry. And yes. I, I, the anthology ethic, yes. Right, and I, so I know I'm partly to blame... <laughs> <laughs> I know I can't help it, but I, I'm so. It really distresses me the idea that this music, which is so vibrant and alive to me, and, still, and dangerous, yes, and dangerous and avant garde, and yeah. speaks for youth and speaks for whatever the counterculture was, whatever it might still be, mm. is just utterly neutered by the lavish attentions of gentlemen like ourselves. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, can't, I don't know what the well, way out of the trap is, you know. I know it's 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 not it's not really us actually because we know what you just said is true. It's I think more that the press is now made up and the media is now made up of people who are kind of our contemporaries. Yeah. And that's where they want to go. They want another nice Dylan article. And they've they're the ones who have destroyed it. I mean from being his ultimate enemies, the press, they've become his ultimate friends. And in and, and yeah. doing so, have, have softened all the edges. 
it's and so also yeah. as can seemingly accommodate anything. You know, I almost miss us laughing at down in the groove. <laughs> Because, but well, you can do it here. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Because now it would be we found a way of understanding what was happening that allows them to put a box set out, which doesn't quite go into the down in the groove era, but it nearly does. And you know, there'll probably be a disc of you know Stanley Brothers covers that he recorded at those sessions, which will come out by itself at some point in the next ten years, and we'll go, oh, see the album he could have released. <laughs> But there's a thing, again, like in Born in Time, that final verse of Born in Time, in the hills of mystery and the foggy web of destiny, I think of you from deep inside of me. That, again, that seems to me to be about what that relationship is. And there was something lost when you could find everything out. I know this is a thing that old blokes say, funnily enough. Oh, but it's so true. You, it's so true. But it's really true, right? I, I, my friend, Paul Wright, who, again, will probably be listening to this, he, was, he said a thing that, never, that I always think about about the Pixies, where he says the Pixies were at their greatest with uh, Come On Pilgrim and Surfer Rosa, when you didn't know anything about them except what was written on the sleeve and there was no photo of the group and all that was written of the, on the sleeve were the names of the band members, which were Black Francis, <laughs> Joey Santiago and Mrs. John Murphy. You just didn't, you didn't know anything about them. And even their names were scary. And the guy on the <laughs> cover has a hairy back and it look, it's a Vaughan Oliver cover... The demystification of that stuff, on the one hand, it makes it available to us and we're able to dip into it and go this tour and those recording sessions or whatever. And that's great. And we love doing that. But it, I fear it comes at the cost of the, the spook. What, funnily enough, what, you know, Neil Young fans call the spook. You know, why does Neil choose one take over another? Well, often it's because it's just got this thing that the other takes, even if they're, they're neat. Like, for instance, um, with Dylan. They shouldn't have remixed Street Legal uh, <laughs> because, it, it, you know, it sounds crap and muddy and that's half the fun of it. Like, like, like Changing of the Guard, which is one of my favourite Bob Dylan records, you can hear what's happening on the record, which is the band don't know the chords. <laughs> yeah. It's full of mistakes. And Dylan doesn't give a shit about the production. No, right? He doesn't. He couldn't care less. It's an, an amazing vocal. And uh, so I kind of love Street Legal for those reasons. I think you, you've got him in the moment, even when it's not his best batch. And, it, you know, clearly that it's riddled with errors. But to me, that was one of the great things about Shadow Kingdom when it came out, because nobody knew what was going to come out. It was just Shadow Kingdom, the early songs of Bob Dylan. And then you had to grab it while it was there. You know, there was no yeah, yeah. pre-publicity except great. the fact that it was coming out. And... And True. talking about being wrecked, I mean, not that he was wrecked, because I think he was stone cold sober, but everybody else. I mean, you've never seen such smoking and drinking. I kept and looking dancing. at the smoking thinking, is that real smoking? Is I'm that... sure it wasn't. I'm absolutely sure it wasn't. I mean, you could see some people smoking in, in their close-ups, but I think they had every smoke machine in the south of France, where, of course, it was not a film. Um, and every frame is just yeah. bursting with sex and sleaze. And, and every face is absolutely fascinating. And I just love the fact that it was, it was there and then it was gone. And you didn't know what was coming. And as you say, that's so rare these days. I, oh. I, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Kerry. I, I, lo <laughs> I love the, uh, the sense of... I don't know if either of you have read... Um, have you ever read Walter Mosley? Yes. 
I just had to reread Devil in a Blue Dress for a yeah. work thing. And yeah. um, it's years since I read Walter Mosley. And first of all, what a terrific book. God, that was that was published like 30 blah years ago. Stands up so well. And, and indeed, he's turned that into a whole kind of series of a dozen novels mapping life in black LA from 1948 through, and he's got up mm. to the late 1960s now. But mm. actually... I had Walter Mosley in mind when I was watching Shadow Kingdom as well, yes. that kind of juke joint. And I was making a joke about Marston Anonymous, but first of all, it was so right that you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't see the faces of hardly anyone except Bob Dylan. That was great. Mm. Well, you could see that you could see the crowd. There was lots of close-ups of the of the crowd, but not of the musicians. Yeah, that's true. But like Luke, the sound of Shadow Kingdom is actually very close to the sound of Marston Anonymous. And Marston Anonymous is nearly 20 years ago yeah. now. You know, it's a sound it's been he's been finessing ever since Love and Theft. Mm. I um, agree. I agree. Although, you know, there, there, there are no drums on it, right? And I think that's a huge leap because mm. there's even drums on Rough and Rowdy Ways. Uh, you know, sort of brushes anyway. But I think I think I, I found myself thinking, oh, Good. No drums. Mm. It's kind of a a weird other thing that we haven't. The rhythm comes from the mostly from the guitar and the and the bass. Well, no drums makes me think of firstly the basement tapes before Levon Helm came back and when mm. Richard Manuel wasn't mm-hmm. playing drums, and also mm. from Elvis, Scotty, and Bill. You know, with Sam Phillips, no drummer there either. You also, don't... I would like if we're talking drums. Let's return to Highway sixty one revisited. Mm. Let's return to the loud cut CBS UK pressing. <laughs> the drums on, I can remember listening to the drums on, on the title track on Highway 61 Revisited yeah. and thinking, I've never heard drums like this. This was in 1985. This is in the gated snare right. Phil Collins era or the Steve Lillywhite English settlement <laughs> townhouse stone room era, right? Yeah. No drums sound like the drums sound on, on Highway 61 Revisited. Yeah. And it makes me think, what did that sound like in 1965 or 66? It must have been, it must have been mind-boggling to hear something so abrasive I mean, putting aside all the kind of, well, the folk, this folk guy now sounds like this. It used to go mm. like that and now it goes like this. Mm. Anybody, the drums didn't sound like that on Beatles records or Stones records or, mm. or anybody's records. The, the incredibly metallic. There's a kind of metallic sound to it. And even yeah, then, when you go, I haven't talked much about Blonde on Blonde, but, you know, in a sense, the, <laughs> the drums on Blonde on Blonde are the voice. On, uh, in Highway 61, Dylan's voice is this, kind of confrontational instrument amongst a set of confrontational instruments. On Blonde on Blonde, the voice is doing that work. The musicianship is less in your face, but the voice is right there. I want to go back to what you said as well about listening to Blonde on Blonde in the state that you listen to it, because I always think that a song like One of Us Must Know sounds best when you're tired, fragile, bereaved, just a little, well, a little bit weakened. There's something about the music that that suits that state. Um, I, I think that I, song, actually, more than anything else on that album. Well, I there's something. Let me tell you another story. I've never that I've never shared with people because these are all quite. The thing is that this is the point I'm trying to make. These are all really quite personal things. These aren't consumer choices I made as a dad. These are moments in my life that really matter to me, and. You know, the first time I went to, I didn't get to New York until 2007. And on my first night in New York, 
I went to a cinema in Greenwich Village, the name of which escapes me. But it's one of the cinemas in Greenwich Village, and I think it was the Waver. It was the Waverly. The Waverly, yeah, that's back iconic. When. And uh, I went with a friend of mine, and we had stayed up all night on the plane to have a cheap flight. And we'd arrived, and we tried to stay awake all day. And it was my first time in you. I mean, you can imagine that my mind was blown. And so we went to the cinema to see I'm not there, and. If I remember rightly, I'm not there. Has a, like a bit like the Velvet film. Has a little bit of pre-titles, and then the titles start, and it's uh, stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis yeah. Blues again. Yeah, and I really cried in the cinema because you know I was really jet lagged <laughs> or tired, and I was emotional because I was in the New York for the first time. But also that was me in 1985 and here I was and I'd survived and I'd made it to 2007. And here was this song, which on the one hand is very arch, you know, is, is Dylan at his most kind of precocious and insolent tossing off these literary references. But that's not how I heard it. I, what I heard was the voice sitting there just going, listen to the voice, what, what the voice is doing. Luke, you're so right. You know, that, this again is why, God, I sound like a, I sound like I'm having some emotional breakdown, which maybe I am. But the, the truth of it is, it really, it really reminds me of the the full emotional thing that music can do. It's all there in the voice and the performance and being tired or emotional or heartbroken or or happy. I wonder if he knew this when he was recording it, because, you know, the, we know that he stayed up until the wee hours writing these songs, recording these songs, putting the musicians through their paces. And to this day, I think he, he favours recording in the middle of the night. Maybe he knows that's where the human spirit is, it is at its most sort of, oh, I'm going to sound really wanky now, but it's most truthful, it's most fragile, it's most accessible. Yeah, there is a sense as well, like with um, Spectre, that, what you need to do if you're the centre of the picture, the sound picture, is you need to wear down your accompanists until they're bringing nothing of themselves. <laughs> and you oh my are god, there. that's like Stanley Kubrick. That's but I exactly think that's really does. true. I mean, yeah, that, that's yeah. one of the things about "Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands" is everybody sounds like they've been recording that song for two weeks over and over and over again. Yeah. And Bob said, "We're going to go one more time," and here it is. Mm. You're too yeah. tired to bring anything but what I want you to bring to the to the party. Rick Hawley did the same thing with Candy Staten. He wouldn't record her until her voice was absolutely. Virtually is that bleeding right? with exhaustion. Oh, well, and that's so interesting because those records are, of course, our favourite Candy Staten records. Yeah, They're incredible. Exactly. Uh, it's funny to I be I think you become your, your, your true self. I think that's what he's sort of getting at without any bells and whistles. I, There's I, nothing left, but you're I, alive and so am I. <laughs> but I, I also want to, you know, I've said a lot about Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde and I love those records, but I also really love... I'm wondering if as I talk to you, it's often the voice or the the moment that really appeals to me. Like with New Morning, we know that's not the best batch of songs, but we also know what a terrific record that is. And one of the reasons for that is because Bob's got a cold yeah. for most of it. <laughs> and he's yeah. and he's gone ahead and done it anyway. And Sign on the win Window and The Man in Me and 
all the good stuff from that record wouldn't sound particularly like it does. No, the word sleet alone wouldn't sound that good. <laughs> but it's wonderful. <laughs> it's absolutely, it's wonderful. that. I mean, I love that version of Sign on the Window that I think came out on the Another Self-Portrait box, which has got the, the Al Cooper orchestration, mm-hmm. right. which, was, which must have, they must have judged was too dinky for the finished record. But actually it... It plays off against the voice, you know. Again, the slight, the sense that the voice is quite, has a bit of grit in it that it shouldn't have, either because it's three in the morning or he's got a cold or whatever. And yet, the flip side of that is, Rough and Rowdy Ways, I think, is is the exception that proves the rule. That sounds to me like those five albums of Sinatra covers were all a way of getting into the space to then have the chops to Mm. make a record differently. I agree entirely. You know, the vocal is the centre of that record, but it's a different approach for Dylan, pushing 80 to go, I'm going to really work as hard as I can on this. He sells the lyrics in a way that I think it's quite rare to hear in latter-day Dylan. Well, also, one thing you can't do with Rough and Rowdy Ways is pick it apart. I mean, Kerry and I were talking about the other day about lyrics because, you know, I, I choose the lyrics that we that he reads at the end of every episode. And the other day I was thinking, I need to get some Rough and Rowdy Ways lyrics in here. They're really difficult to sell, a lot of them, outside of the context of how Bob Dylan sounds. And like you said earlier on, it's not one thing. It's not the music, it's not the melody, it's not the voice, it's not the lyrics. It's all of those things together. You know, you try reading, I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I challenge anyone to read the, the, the Indiana Jones Rolling Stones couplet. I'll take you on. You know, they sound fucking great. When yeah, them, go for it, Kerry, do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the thing is, you'd get, you'd get a laugh, actually. They're, they're, they're sort of laughable, aren't they? Well, yeah, but only the first time you hear them in his hands, I think, and then they become canon, and then you never... Yeah, but also, Luke, there's a... You know, that's only one bit of the lyric. If the whole record were an hour of those lyrics, if it were an hour of the McGonagall strand in (laughs) Bob's work, of which there is a clear... There's quite a lot. (laughs) Right. But there's not on that record, there's other lyrics which are far more... (laughs) What's the word I'm searching for? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But they're far more subtle, you know. I'm intrigued by his bad lyrics. I really am. I find, you know, you think... Clearly, he knows what he's doing. So, mm. what is he doing? Mm, yeah, what yeah. the hell is he doing? You know, I'm, I'm mystified. I, that's the great thing about Dylan. You know, on my deathbed, I'll probably go, "Oh, that Rolling Stones line. Yeah, that's yeah. what he was doing with that." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, another reason I wanted to talk about this today is, um, you know, I think there's a really great book by uh, a writer called Andrew Hankinson called "Don't Applaud, Either Laugh or Don't." <laughs> Uh, which is about a history of a, the comedy cellar in New York, which I think I'm right in saying in the 60s was Gerdes Folk City and got rebranded. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So it's the history of that space and how it went from, it was founded by Jewish escapees from Europe to be a centre for, who didn't care, right? Who, who said, you can come here and sing about what you want and say what you want because we just escaped the Nazis. So who cares what someone says? to being a place where, because of a different version of free speech, Louis C.K. relaunches his career. And so the book is about how we feel about those things. And it has a kind of brilliance. All points of view are represented. It's an oral history. So you, you are left as the reader to decide what you feel about what's being 
told to you about those issues. And there's a guy quoted in there who talks about what the particulars of the modern era are. The culture war, which I hate that term, but, you know, souped up by social media. Mm. But it is relevant to what we've been talking about. This idea that you see yourself as an individual, but a group of people see you as an example of a, one of a group of people. And that clash has never been more dramatic than it is now. So are you the cause of something or are you the symptom of something? And I think with the Dylan thing, that's exactly what's going on <laughs> in a weird way. I see myself as someone who has a one-on-one -on -one personal connection with the music of Bob Dylan and the world sees me as just another bloke <laughs> buying a box set at Christmas. Yeah. Join the club, absolutely. Right, and that, yeah. and that for me, that's creating a real friction with how I, in fact, how I've approached today. <laughs> you know, I, and indeed, our producer Nikki, who I love, if you listen to this, Nikki, I love Nikki on Backlisted, has banned me from talking about Bob Dylan on Backlisted because her, I'm not unreasonably, her view is old middle-aged white guy talks about Bob Dylan mm. or Bruce Springsteen or Neil Young. And I want to say, yeah, I know that's true. Simult but simultaneously, I really like Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young. And my relationship with those artists goes back to when I wasn't a middle-aged man. It goes right. back to when I was a kid. Right. And we As had a disagreement <laughs> about doing, I would love to do Tarantula on Backlisted. Uh, oh, my God. Well, really? I think I, mean, I have to say I haven't read it. So well, I'm saying to you, it's a great book, and I <laughs> I put my neck on the block wow. by saying that. But you find me another book like Tarantula. There isn't one. And on Batlisted, we're very interested in books that aren't like other books. Most books are like other books, and you can see bits of Kerouac and the Beats and whatever in Tarantula. But to, let me tell you, the only thing you've ever read that's like Tarantula are the sleeve notes of Another Side of Bob Dylan, mm. Bring It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited. Mm. There aren't any books like it. Mm. And it has a kind of incredibly funny, savvy pop blender. Not pop culture, pop blender. Bob would throw anything into the mix to get that book finished apart mm. from anything else. And I just think, well... You know, we're very lucky. We have those records and we have Eat the Document and we have Tarantula and we shouldn't marginalise those things as just old bloke ephemera. They're the work of a young artist. Have you ever done yeah, a much pink. more accessible book, uh, Chronicles? Oh, no, and what an amazing book that but is. It, it's, it, don't you full find of it? lies. <laughs> yes, full of lies, but a great, great read, like an easy read. Chronicles, yeah, we, I would love to do Chronicles on Batlisted. You know, because in a sense, what you're liberating it from is uh, this, the idea that it's just, oh, yeah, here he goes. Yeah, the, Bob Dylan's book is great. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it, I've heard it. You know, the mm. people who haven't read it. But we, we <laughs> bloodied in the trenches of the 80s and 90s. <laughs> we know the difference between good Bob Dylan product and less good Bob Dylan no, product. We... Had Dylan published Chronicles in the 80s, it wouldn't have been that book. And it's unlikely to have been as good as that book is. 
and it's tremendous. Goodness, but you haven't read Tarantula. Okay, well, you no. Sh- I mean, I picked up Tarantula back when it was when it came out. I was in a bookstore, and I picked up Tarantula. You know, because they it actually made it to the bookstores. Yeah, even though nobody bought it, and I picked it up, and I think I stood there for like twenty minutes, and read twenty minutes worth of it, and tried to find a way in. And in my little brain, as it existed at the time. I couldn't find a way in because it's okay to read the the sleeve notes, but to read a whole book yeah, of yeah. The sleeve notes yeah. was beyond me. That. It was yeah, beyond yeah. me. It's like Mexico I, City I, Blues, yeah. the Kerouac um, book. I read that as a twenty-something pretentious Dylan fan, and then I thought I can't really get into this. And then when I picked up Tarantula, I thought I'm not sure I can do this again. <laughs> you know, my feeling. <laughs> you know, the truth is there aren't very many truly bad books. Mm. just as there aren't very many truly good books. And there are loads and loads and loads of books which are fine. But it's very rare that I read a book and I get absolutely nothing from it or I get so infuriated by the ineptitude with which it's written because, in fact, that's that's very rare. And with Tarantula, I think if I'd read it 30 years ago, I would have felt, well, this is this is no good. But now I read it and I think... Wow, we're so lucky to have this thing. It doesn't all work, but so what? What does? Almost nothing. <laughs> you know, is it going to thrill you? Well, probably not. Is it going to grip you? No. But how about if you gripped it? <laughs> you know, if it if you went, okay, I'm just going to go with whatever this thing is. I found it incredibly rewarding. And like I say, that kind of white heat of creativity that Bob experiences or creates or both in the 60s. This is not to diminish anything he did afterwards, but we have to accept that that's somebody working, perhaps assisted in some illegal ways, but that's somebody working at an intensity of production and creativity mm. where you will be hard-pressed to find another artist doing the same thing. And and Tarantula is, is part of that. Um, You've convinced me I'm going to have another crack at it. Yeah, definitely. you convinced me too. But you don't even I mean, have to have a crack at it. I just sort of think, well, what, you know, read a couple dozen pages mm. every day. And it's mm. not meant to be, the point is yeah. it's not meant to be read from cover to cover. It's meant to be kind of dipped into and mm. take a hit and put it down and do something else. So, you know, maybe, maybe like my dream. Drug, basically. You're yeah, saying. that's exactly what I'm saying. Maybe my dream of a backlisted on Tarantula could have, maybe we could have a backlisted on books by or about Bob Dylan. Books by Bob Dylan, we could do Tarantula and Chronicles. Oh, this is sounding like you, you know where to find least, us. The least listened to episode of Batlisted <laughs> ever. <laughs> Amazing. Just to go back to Chronicles, just briefly, just because you're a book man. I mean, did you read it when it came out? And yeah, you know? I mean, I I knew on the grapevine that the book had been sold some time before, and not because of Dylan, but let me tell you, in the world, because I used to work as an editor for a publisher, and let me tell you. No words made the heart sink faster than so-and-so has agreed to write their memoir because it usually meant the book would be bad. And also there was an inverse ratio where the more the artist was paid for the book, the less likely it was it would be any good. If they were paid a few thousand pounds, they would have to work hard and make a good book to make some money off it. But if you paid them a million quids, they would just go, I've got my money, why should I care? Or the management would say that, you know. And clearly, Dylan would have received a big advance for Chronicles. But from my point of view, the thing that Chronicles did was 
as Dylan has done so many times with the records he made or with when Biograph came out or the kind of films that he made, when Chronicles came out, that sent a signal to all his contemporaries that that was the new gold standard. Mm. And I'm sure you wouldn't have got Just Kids by Patti Smith if Dylan hadn't written Chronicles. Mm. Not in deal terms. I just mean mm. Dylan had done a thing with the literary form to go, hey, we, you know these, these cash-in books? These can be great. Mm. Here's how you do it. Or not even here's how you do it. Here's me doing it. Now you do it. You know, I just read, um, I just reread Springsteen's book via the audio book. And I didn't love the book off the page when I read it, when it came out. But going back to the audio book where Springsteen reading it, it's, it's terrific. But again, I feel like, I mean, we could argue about how good these books are, like Elvis Costello's book or Neil Young's couple of books or Mike Nesmith's book or, you know, the list goes on. There's no doubt in my mind from a publishing perspective that Dylan redefines what's expected of you, the creative artist if you commit to do a book like that. And what's hilarious is we know that it was generated by having to write sleeve notes for reissues of three records. Yeah. But what he does is he manages to work in loads of early stuff that you would want to hear him talk about. <laughs> in a kind to of... me, it's just the, the thing that amazes me yeah. is it's so open. And I don't you know, like using the word generous, but it does seem it's so open-hearted. I was stunned by it. I was staggered by it because it just seems to have no side to it. He gives you the impression, which is probably false, that you actually are getting to know him a bit. And that's why it's great, because you aren't. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, know. you know, that's that guy Robert Zimmerman again, you know, taking this character called Bob Dylan and based on himself and making something new with it. It's to create a persona that then frees him up to make the artistic statements that he wants to make. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster. Engineered by Nev Brothers and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. I'm hungry and I'm irritable and I'm tired of this bag of tricks. At one time, there was nothing wrong with me that you could not fix. Well, I sailed through the storm, strapped to the mast. But, oh, the time has come, and I'm seeing the real you at last. <laughs>